and welcome to episode 93 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I chat with Walter Luckin IV as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series. This is the important thing that I like to say to people when we talk about remediation, which is that there is a big difference between students who might need additional support to succeed in college versus students who are like deficient and need to be brought up to speed skills wise. I know this because I myself was a student who supposedly, according to all these metrics, was testing at all, you know, at 99th percentile in everything but I was so bad at college. I was extremely bad at like doing homework, turning stuff in on time. So I myself could have actually benefited from a lot of extra time to like think about things like time management, efficacy, executive function, and all that type of stuff. You'll hear more from Walter in a bit. But first, I want to remind you that the Council of Writing Program Administrators seeks submissions for its award recognizing outstanding scholarship by graduate students writing on issues in writing program administration. Eligibility. Submissions should be authored or co-authored by students currently enrolled in graduate classes or graduate programs, or by those who have recently completed their graduate degrees. Students need not be enrolled in a RETCOMP field, but the submission must be clearly linked to WPA work. Submissions should have been completed as a graduate student between January and December 2021. Submissions should be manuscripts of 5,000 to 8,000 words, including references, or an equivalent multimedia and or web-based project that are unpublished or not already accepted for publication. These projects could include, but are not limited to, historical archival studies of WPA-related issues, writing program assessment, faculty development, classroom ethnography, or composition curriculum analysis. In order to represent the full scholarship of our field, as well as to reflect the CWPA's commitment to underrepresented groups. The committee especially welcomes submissions that explore issues of diversity and identity formation and address issues of relevance to diverse populations that interrogate power structures. Submission guidelines. Please submit a one-page cover letter and your manuscript in a single word document. Multimedia projects should include a cover letter in Word. Application deadline and timeline. Applicants should submit materials via email to katamira, K-A-T dot O-M-E-A-R-A at S-N-C Chair of the CWPA Graduate Research Award Committee with the subject line 2022 CWPA Graduate Research Award by March 15th, 2022. Entries will be reviewed and a winner selected by May 2022. The winner will be notified as soon as possible thereafter. The winner of the award will be publicly recognized 
at the 2022 WPA Summer Conference. There's a prize, a certificate, and total cash prize of $300 will be awarded to the winning project. In accepting the award and prize, the authors agree to submit a proposal for a presentation based on the project for inclusion in the WPA Summer Conference Program. If you have any questions, please contact Kat O'Meara at kat.omeara at snc.edu. Shifting Gears, the big rhetorical podcast, Emerging Scholar Series, is a unique series of podcast episodes. It's an inclusive space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship and their pedagogy, their service to the field, the discipline of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication disciplines. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations. This record of conversations eventually will be a vast catalog of dialogues, a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, technical communication, and adjacent fields. Moreover, the big rhetorical podcast Emerging Scholars series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. If you would like to be featured on an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series, reach out to us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the Big Rep. Find us on Facebook and fill out a form at our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Walter Luckin IV is Assistant Director of Composition at Wayne State University, where he is a PhD candidate studying rhetoric and writing. His research focuses on abolitionist histories and historiographies of literacy and rhetorical education in the Americas, especially in the fields of basic writing and community literacy. In addition to his work at Wayne State, he co-facilitates the Writer's Block Writing Workshop at the Make Men's Correctional Facility and recently co-edited Absent But Present Voices from the Writer's Block, a collection of poetry from writers incarcerated at Mancom CF. His writing has appeared in Runner, Roar, Michigan Re Quarterly Review, Art and the Public Sphere, and Freedom Arts Journal. He lives in Detroit. I hope you enjoy my interview with Walter Lucking IV. What's your name, your title and institution, your role there? 
Who are you? What do you do? Okay, so um, my name is Walter Luckin. I'm currently the assistant director of composition at Wayne State in the English department. So mostly like administration type stuff right now. A little bit of internal research. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric and writing, also in the same department at the same institution, ABD. So I kind of am making my own schedule at this point, I guess. Um, research is mostly about sort of like histories of rhetoric and uh, histories of like rhetorical and literacy education from a sort of abolitionist perspective, you know. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much what I'm into now. I uh, also co-facilitate the Writer's Block Writing Workshop at the Macomb Men's Correctional Facility in New Haven, which is a little bit outside Detroit, and Detroit is where I live. So I think those are kind of the basic facts of uh, basic facts of my professional life, I guess. Are you from Detroit? Sort of, kind of. Um, so for people that are familiar with the area, I was born in Southfield at Providence on Nine Mile. Um, most of my extended family lives in the city still. Like my dad's from here. My dad is from like Six Mile Puritan area for people that are familiar with the city. So I was born here, um, lived in the area for like, until I was like two and then we moved out to kind of near Lansing because that's my mom had a teaching job out there. And then so since then, I was kind of always like back and forth in and out, you know, and I've consistently lived in Detroit since 2012. Well, no, I mean, I lived in Ypsilanti for a year and a half recently during um, the first part of COVID, but I've like pretty much always lived in Detroit, you know, since I was like 20. I've been to Detroit once uh, for a conference. At Wayne State, I think this was in probably 2018. I didn't get to spend a lot of time in the city. I was only there for a night. But what's it like to grow up in Detroit where you grew up? And what's it like to stay there for your education? Well, so I guess for the growing up period, to the extent that that concluded, I was more I was more so spending time uh in Lansing like that's where I went to high school I went to high school I, I didn't like really really go to high school but when I when I did I was at high school outside Maybe you didn't Lansing, go to high sort school. of what do you mean really didn't go to high school so I mean it was kind of complicated so I so I was in a town called Dansville which is in between Lansing and Jackson and um I kind of I had a, I was, was kind of, I had like a bad time in public school. Okay. And it was the type of situation where like, you know, and this is kind of, this is something that goes into my research a lot is I like was not good at school and I was like not good at being a student, but I had like high test scores or whatever. So I guess they didn't really know what to do with me for that reason. So I ended up, I took an IQ test. I took the WISC-2, um, which if anybody knows what that is, that's the one I took. Um, if 
people are wondering if you should ever take your child to have their IQ like tested like quantitatively with like a number just don't you shouldn't do that because that's not real and that's also very bad for a child like don't do that to a kid so I uh I got my IQ tested in between sixth and seventh grade and uh you know the I don't know whatever I mean this, this the truth of the story is that the psychologist that gave the test told my mom that she had never seen anything like this in 40 years of giving the test. Looking back, I suspect that they just like charge people cash for this test and then tell everyone that their child is a genius because that's what I would do if I were them, right? So I don't know if that's real, but I skipped seventh grade as a consequence of having taken this test. And uh, that was not a good move for a number of different reasons. And okay. so I stopped going to... What's that? I was going to say, that sounds like like that's a formative year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did not go to seventh grade. Uh, I was in eighth grade for a minute. It didn't work out. It's not a good situation. Um, and I was I was like in the emotionally impaired class, you know, which, again, I mean, I'm glad because that was a very important experience for me that is still kind of part of my, you know, identity i guess but yeah so i did that and so what's funny is this was the same year that movie eight mile came out and i um so the school that the nemesis in eight mile goes to or went to is called uh cranbrook kingswood which was a like sort of elite boarding school in uh suburban detroit right so so there's some some adult sent some other adult adult some letter suggested that I apply there. I did. I did a visit uh, and I took the entrance exam again. I was told that I got some very, very, very high score on the entrance exam. I don't know if that's true or not. It might tell everybody that. Who knows? My understanding is that when the people at Cranbrook got a hold of the middle school, the middle school may or may not have like shared with them that I had like, you know, I was like not a good student and I had behavioral problems and I was like, you know, I was fighting in chemistry class and all this other stuff. So I don't know. I don't know if I didn't get in or if I didn't get the scholarship because my parents at the time had no money and I was getting free lunch and all that. So I think that there was some kind of, there was some kind of like, you know, sort of goodwill hunting thing angle that my parents were trying to work. I don't know. Basically that didn't work out. And so because that didn't work out, I just kind of, I remember it being a mutual decision with me and my parents that I was just not going to go to school anymore. So on paper, I was homeschooled, but both my parents were working. Ed was a maintenance dude at a hotel and my mom I think she was working at a call center um, for Medicaid, like dealing with like, you know, like people's like Medicaid issues or whatever. And so and then she got a job at tutoring at the community college in Lansing somewhere around there also. So it was the kind of thing where like I was homeschooled, but like I was kind of like, you know, uh, what was it? Um, 
Ivan Illich is the guy's name, like unschooling or whatever. Like I was kind of like unschooling. I was uh, studying for the SAT, if I recall correctly. And uh, I was like going to the library by myself and like reading about squirrels and stuff like that. I was kind of just like doing whatever I wanted to do school wise. My mom's going to be mad when she hears this because like, I'm, you know, I just didn't go to school and that's probably illegal. But uh, yeah, so I did that. And then the year after that, I figured out how to do the dual enrollment thing because my mom worked at the community college. So she knew about that. And we figured out that if so, I was I, I like said I was homeschooled and I went up there. So I was like 13. I started taking classes at a community college in Lansing or whatever. And that was cool. I actually did better at that than I did uh, at like regular school. Like I, I did really well in those classes. I had like intro to French or whatever. And I was doing that. Then we figured out that if I took one class at the local high school, that the high school would have to pay all my tuition to do the dual enrollment classes. So I did that for two years and I graduated high school when I was like 15 and I didn't really go up there very much. Like I had like one class, like I took government or whatever, but for the most part, I was kind of like up to my own devices, you know, like I would like, I was at the community college most of the day and I would kind of like pop into high school here and there to like take a test or whatever. But I wasn't really about high school, man. You know, like I wasn't, it was just not really my speed. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't super into it. I didn't really like really go to high school basically, I guess. So that's like a kind of a long way of answering that question. But yeah, I like didn't, um, I didn't really go to high school. But you did go to college. You went to Michigan State University where you got a bachelor's degree in history. That's so- correct. After this uh, graduating high school at 15, like, was that, I guess, in 2008, like, did you go directly to Michigan State? Did you want to pursue higher education? Was that just the next step in line? How did that work? So what happened was I, when I graduated high school, I had like 50 college credits already, you know? And at the time, they probably still has it. Um, the state of Michigan had a thing called the tuition incentive program, I want to say, where if you had been Medicaid eligible within the prior three years, you like didn't have to pay any tuition to go to any like public two-year or four-year school. And I was already comfortable at the community college where I was at and like it's not like I don't know I didn't like I wasn't I decided to graduate early from high school like too late into the academic year to try to apply to like a four-year college you know what I'm saying so like it was the type of situation where I was like okay I'm gonna hang out at LCC the community college in Lansing for another year or so and like plot my next moves or whatever. So I did that. And then I went and did a study abroad thing in London for three months when I was 17. Um, I was abroad, but I was not studying. So I did that. I was hanging out, you know, I was like, 
I was like going to raves or whatever when I was over there. I was like trying to like get on the guest list for parties and stuff, you know, like I had my little outfits and whatnot. So like I wasn't really I wasn't really focused like school wise. Right. And then so I got back and that was when I started going to Michigan State. So I went there. I actually graduated high school in 2006. And so I was in undergrad for six years because I ended up. I think I like I like soft dropped out a couple times while I was an undergrad because, you know, there was a lot of other stuff going on at the time. And like it's kind of hard to focus on school when you're like in the same place where you grew up, like hanging out with like all the same people that you grew up with, because like people have like a different mindset. And then because I graduated high school early and I started at community college or whatever, I didn't really feel like I was a part of the culture or the community or whatever at Michigan State. And like, you know, I wasn't I didn't really fit in anywhere because it was like the overwhelming majority of the people that are there. It's like, you know, like they're into like, you know, like tailgating and stuff, which I'm not knocking. That just wasn't my thing. But then the people who like were at like the residential arts and humanities college or whatever you know they all lived in the same dorm with each other since they started so they got all their little clicks or whatever and they have their whole scene and they were kind of clicky so they weren't really rocking with me either so because i didn't really fit into the campus culture i mostly like hung out with people that i like knew from like around the way like in in and around lansing or whatever so i kind of I I had trouble focusing, but I, eventually I did finish in 2012 or whatever. So right. that was kind of the story of that. I was in linguistics at first, which I didn't really have the study skills for at the time. And then I had other stuff going on. And uh, so when I, I dropped a semester and I was maybe not going to finish and somebody suggested that I transfer and change my major to history because I had done well in the history courses that I took. And so I did that and that was how I ended up finishing. So that's kind of like the story of undergrad, I guess. How have all these experiences, this unique uh, educational experience throughout high school and your undergraduate experience shaped the way, shaped your research interests, right? And histories of rhetoric and abolitionist perspectives of rhetoric. Right. Okay. So I have two answers for that. I'm going to start, I'm going to do it in reverse order and I'm going to talk about the abolition aspect first. So when I was 15, I had a, uh, I had an internship at a record store, right. And it wasn't paid or anything. And I don't, I kind of just like hung out in there, you know, and I just kind of watched the record store. Right. And at this time, this was when you still had like small presses that were able to print like books for not a lot of money and the internet and PDFs and stuff like wasn't really the focus quite yet. So it wasn't really about like the PDF zines. You could get like a zine that was like a physical thing, right? And so there were these anarchist presses that would have these books. And then I think they would send them to record stores like uh, 
like on consignment or whatever. So if you happened to sell some, you had to send them some money, but it was the type of situation where they were just around a lot. And so I was, because I was in there already, I was able to read um, a lot of these books because I was just sitting in there all day, right? And you got to remember, like, I'm 15. I don't go to high school. So I'm just kind of like chilling in this record store, right? People didn't believe that I was 15. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say where because it's probably not legal to have like 15 year olds like operating your business for you for free, you know, but uh, it was sweet. It was great. It was like better than school. I, I, I thought it was way better than being in 10th grade. Right. But anyway, there were two books. There was a book that was called Bomb the Suburbs. And it's not about bombing buildings like no like like terrorism type stuff. It was like bombing, like a graffiti type situation, right? You know, and basically the guy's name was uh, William Upsky Wimsett, I think was the dude's name. And in the, in that book, he was talking about like density and transit and like how to set up cities for, to be like equitable and stuff, like things that a lot, a lot of people are talking about now, but in 2005, 2006, it was like, and then the sequel was called No More Prisons, which was one of the two first books that I read about, like, the prison industrial complex. And, you know, you got to remember, this is 2005, 2006. So critical resistance, which is, you know, like, one of the first big prison abolition organizations was, like, not very old at that time. And this was still a pretty new conversation. So that I read that book about, like, why prisons exist and what function they actually serve in society. And then I read, um, there was a book called uh, Disjointed Search for the Will to Live, which was by a guy, his name is Shaka Nzinga. He is incarcerated in the state of Maryland um, for a, uh, for like a, sexual assault murder case in which he maintains his innocence to the presence right so he's to the present so he's wrongfully everyone who's incarcerated is wrongfully incarcerated but he like maintains that he did not commit the crime for which he is incarcerated so that was like his memoirs and there was some poetry in there and then also he had some you know sort of pieces of like critical analysis of like the prison industrial complex in its relation to other aspects of society, particularly schooling. And so for me, having had such an extremely negative experience of schooling and, you know, I mean, I, I haven't even gotten into uh, like a lot of stuff that happened with me and teachers and stuff, which like, I there's no reason to get into that now. I'm sure that people that have, you know, been in that position, like kind of know what I'm talking about. It was really, it really spoke to me how he was able to connect a lot of his experiences in schooling and how that like sort of shaped the way that he felt about himself in society and like the relationship between schooling and carceral systems and how it all fits together. And then, like, the role of literacy and how, like, texts and discourse circulates throughout both of these systems. That was, like, 
what I was reading instead of like being in 10th grade. Right. So it was the type of situation where that was my education. Like I didn't really go to school, you know, and like I didn't, I didn't do no like homecoming float. I did not have a, I wasn't doing any like fast times at Ridgemont High, like driving. I was, I couldn't drive until I was like already graduated. Right. So my education was abolitionist education, you know, like, or, you know, I mean, people throw this around. So I wouldn't necessarily say this, but when I was younger, I would have told you I had, I had like a, I had a revolutionary education. Like I didn't have like a regular one, you know, and that was part of the reason that I had trouble in college as well, because when I got there, it was the type of thing where like I was used to, and also like I had older friends at that time who were reading and studying this kind of stuff with me that were involved in this type of activism. And, uh, cause like I, I was trying to rap when I was a teenager. Right. So most of my older friends were like older rappers. So it was the kind of situation where with them, whatever book I was reading, like they would walk in and they'd be like, Oh, that's a good book. You should read this. And, you know, they might give me like Mumia Abu Jamal or like, that was how I got on like, you know, Franz Fanon and stuff like that at first. And I was used to like intellectual conversations being like very stimulating. And I was used to the idea of like learning as like a collective process. That's like problem posing and problem solving and self-directed by everyone. And like, uh, basically like for like a larger collective social like purpose to produce effects in the world. So that was the kind of stuff that it was it's like the kind of thing where like if you've gone without something your whole life you like don't know that you need it so it was the type of thing where when i first got when i first lived in a house that had air conditioning i was like 30 right and i was sitting there and i was like damn this is kind of sweet and now the idea of living somewhere without ac is like terrifying to me but when I was 25, I was like, you know, you better put a fan in the window, right? You know, like, and so basically as a consequence of that, I was like used to these kinds of intellectual experiences where, and it could be any book. It wasn't just this stuff, like, you know, because a lot of a lot of older guys that I hung out with at that time were um, like, you know, like part of like the Muslim religion. So like they might show me something from like the Quran and it would be the kind of thing where it was, there was a reason why we were talking about what we were talking about. Cause I had not, I wasn't into grades, you know, and stuff like that. And like, I didn't really, I wasn't really about that. So when I got to college, the, the impersonalness, impersonality, whatever the word is, of a big R1 university where you don't have like any kind of, I didn't experience any kind of community with my classmates or with instructors or whatever. And I didn't really feel like we were in a collective community project. That to me um, made it impossible for me to learn, I guess, because I was spoiled in a sense by the sort of education that I had received just being out in the community, meeting people as a teenager. 
so even and then also like i didn't know how harmful or like racist or like classist or transphobic or whatever like a lot of faculty were and a lot of the stuff that they were saying because i remember distinctly and like obviously i wouldn't deal with this the same way in the present but i remember i was sitting in a class i was sitting in a child language acquisition at michigan state when i was doing linguistics and the lesson was about how children from low-income families don't do well in school because of the communication strategies that are used in their home and how like lower class like parents mothers especially interact with their students in such a way that like suffocates their intellectual development and so then they don't do well in school and i remember like uh you know, and again, I think some of this, some of this might have been like, I'm going to be charitable and say that some of this might have been a translation thing, because I remember the professor was European. Um, she was saying something about like welfare mothers and how welfare mothers only say no to their children, which is why they don't learn in school, because they just get told no all the time. And like, I was like, I my family was getting benefits when I was born, you know, and like when I was in middle school, I was getting Medicaid and free lunch. So I was just like, you you know, if you knew people who not only had, you know, been on public assistance, but the experience of like being in poverty when you have like a child, right, which at this point in my life is, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not no joke, right? That's like, that's like a, that's, that's like real life, right? You wouldn't just be sitting there talking about welfare mothers like that, you know? And again, maybe this instructor didn't know how loaded that was because there's, they're not aware of the sort of cultural connotations or whatever. That's me being charitable. I suspect that's not the case, but again, you know, and so I walked out of that class at the break and I was like, I'm not coming back to this class. Anymore. I don't need to learn all this mad. I don't need to learn this devilishness. But again, I mean, that was like $4,000 of tuition that I blew by not being in that class. So I guess like, I think I was spoiled in a sense because I knew what kinds of, I knew what kind of experience like literacy learning and reading and writing and working together with other people to learn could be and like that my experience of being at like you know a research university was very so not that that it took me a really long time to be able to do that and uh to to be able to succeed in school at all yeah and so that was that um so i think i actually answered both your questions really yeah i think okay. that i think that was kind of it cool Let's shift gears. Let's shift gears. Writer's block. What is writer's block? How did you come to work with this organization or within this program? And of course, most importantly, why is the work you're doing with writer's block so critical? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started, uh, so writer's block is connected to a, uh, an organization called Hamtramck Free School in Hamtramck, Michigan, which does like 
community education, skill sharing type stuff and like art projects and like also like, you know, um, publishes art and writing by incarcerated people and stuff like that. I had been aware of Hamtramck Free School forever, but at the time I was working a job, I was working like a second shift job, so I couldn't really do anything. Um, so I didn't do it. I didn't go up there. I started hanging out up there a couple of years ago over the summer in between academic years. And um, basically just from hanging out, the opportunity presented itself to be involved with the workshop because my co-facilitator, whose name is Kristen Paul, um, she was doing it by herself, you know, and again, I mean, driving from downtown Detroit to where uh, the Macomb Correctional Facility is, it's like a long drive by yourself. It's like kind of a thing. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm gonna start doing this. Because again, remember, like I said, I was reading books by incarcerated writers when I was like 15. Before I knew about any rhetoric, composition, any of that, that was what I was into. So if somebody, you know, so for them to be like, hey, do you want to help out with this writing workshop and, you know, in a, you know, correctional facility? I was like, yeah, of course. You know, that's like, that's the kind of stuff that I dreamed about doing when I was a kid, you know? So I went up there and we started doing it. So basically the way the workshop has worked, we haven't been there. I haven't been to the facility in two years because of COVID. And I mean, if you, if, if I get on the subject of uh, the, you know, impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the Michigan Department of Corrections, we're going to have to do like 10 more hours of recording. So Shame on the state of Michigan and shame on the Michigan Department of Corrections for the way that they've handled uh, COVID. That's, you know, that's my official statement on that. And we I can't give you 10 minutes. I can't give you 10 episodes or 10 hours, but why? So for those of you who are not familiar um, with. So there's a website called Six Feet of Distance, um, which was started by some, you know, uh, some comrades and collaborators here in Detroit. On it, there is a uh, sort of essay or a piece of communication from James Fusan, who is one of the people who does the Writer's Block workshop with us, um, who's at Macomb CF, basically telling the story much better than I can. But essentially... uh, Yeah. So the Michigan. So my understanding is that 93 percent of people incarcerated in the state of Michigan in the MDOC state system have tested positive for covid at one point. Since the uh, pandemic started at one point, the figure was 70 percent. I I can't be quoted on that because I know I've read that, but I haven't double, triple checked it. But basically, it was the kind of thing where. The um, the system has not respected the human rights of people incarcerated within it throughout the whole process. A lot of people have a lot of, you know, people incarcerated in the state of Michigan have, you know, contracted COVID, died of COVID. Uh, there have, you know, haven't been given soap like they were supposed to, haven't been given masks like they were supposed to, um, some communication stuff uh not you know uh, not being isolated from each other in the way that is safe uh covid positive inmates i don't say inmates excuse me 
COVID positive people who are incarcerated being like transferred to other facilities and like all this stuff. So if people want information about that, um, I think, uh, yeah, the website is called six feet of distance. And if people, you know, email me, I can share them with them like more specific sources, but yeah, basically it's a bad situation. So we haven't been in there for two years. Um, but when we were going in, what we do is, is we, you know, every, we have like a prompt for the week. Everybody writes a poem or whatever. I started writing poetry again to do the workshop, which I hadn't, I hadn't written poems in like, you know, long time, like more than 10 years. All right. All right. And so I started doing that. So basically the, the bulk of it is like reading, you know, reading the poems in a circle for what we came up with. And kind of talking about them and, you know, doing the workshop type situation, which I didn't, I don't have any creative writing courses. I don't have any MFA. I don't know about any of that. I, everything I know about how to do all this, I just learned from doing the workshop, you know, and I, it was the type of thing where most of the guys who do the workshop have been involved in like writing and publishing their writing longer than I've been doing any stuff like that. Because some of them have been, uh, you know, incarcerated since like the 90s and are like a little older than me. Right. So it was the kind of thing where I actually learned a lot about like writing and poetry and stuff just from like, you know, being around them. And uh, so we, did, you know, we were doing that. We published a uh, anthology of their writing, which is called Absent But Present, which is available on the Allied Media Projects website about a year ago, which was super exciting. We were super proud of it. It was definitely the best project that I've been a part of. So really, um, since then, we've mostly been, I mean, Kristen and I have mostly been focused on like promoting the book and, you know, trying to see about like when it's going to be safe for us to start going in again. I mean, obviously there's no way to tell. Uh, hopefully, when it, hopefully soon it is safe to do all kinds of stuff in person again, who knows, you know, but so that's the situation with that. Um, so yeah, I've been involved in that project since August, 2019. So yeah, we've been doing that, doing workshops and stuff. And then also to, you know, to the extent that I'm able to, I try to like, you know, platform, communication from the facility and other you know prisons around michigan with all the different things that are going on uh currently there is um you know different types of stuff going on i mean i kind of i try to be like sort of uh you know i try to exercise discretion with some of that stuff not because i'm necessarily like worried about me but it's just like you know uh I think a lot of times people who work, do kind of like abolition type projects, they don't they don't always exercise the right caution when they talk about those subjects, which is wrong because if anybody's going to be negatively impacted by like um, sort of not cautious communication, it's going to be, you know, like our like friends and collaborators who are incarcerated, right? It's not going to be me. So that's the kind of thing where like some of that stuff I got to be kind of vague about or whatever, but uh, yeah. So that's pretty much the deal with that is kind of just working on poems together. It's like really kind of that simple, I guess. 
Certainly, it's much more than that when we think about though the implications, right, for our society and the way that we think about incarceration, which is a topic, frankly, I don't know a, not, a lot about, but it is something that has directly impacted my immediate family. So oh. there's, there's a lot of things to think about, right? Um, I don't really have much more there other than I think it's it's something that I, that more folks need to be really thinking about literacy and incarceration. And certainly there are movements in the field to do that work. Right. We know that. Yeah, yeah. And you're part of that work, which is really exciting. In fact, one of the ways you're doing this work, right, this anti-racist abolitionist work is through your scholarship. And specifically, you've got a book chapter that you're working on, Anti-Racist Epistemologies of Reflection in Studio Pedagogy. It's a lot of words there. I know what they all mean separately, but what do they all mean together? What is this article about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd love to talk about that. So that book chapter is basically, um, so I'm writing it with uh, Tony DeGenero and Elia Hohauser Thatcher, who are, you know, buddies from grad school. And the reason that we're thinking about studio, in order to get there, I kind of have to backtrack a little bit into some like kind of thoughts that I have about uh, basic writing, you know, or um, another term, Mary Soliday calls it the politics of remediation, right? And so I have been interested in sort of the politics of remediation and remedial i mean so the listener can't hear i'm doing quotes when i use those words right like i don't you know i don't personally i don't think any student or any course or whatever yeah is remedial like i don't i don't know what that is but basically the idea is that um there's larger political significance and social historical significance to the ways that we think about remediation. And the reason for the reason for that is because remediation presumes some kind of like normative, regular, sort of average first year college student for was one way of thinking about it. Now it's easy for me to say that the idea of an average college student is not real because my own experience is such that like I kind of didn't really ever pass through the usual kind of um thresholds at like the same time that quote unquote people are expecting to. And so that's kind of my where I start from with that. So basically the idea is the whole I to an extent I think that the whole basis of developmental writing courses is that there's some kind of average student that has a certain kind of literate skills and practices that are appropriate for being a college freshman. And that if you have a student who is not at that level or that proficiency or whatever you know term we want to use, that they require some sort of additional support, remediation, et cetera, to correct their like literacy skills. Now, obviously, the whole theoretical field of basic writing is so much more complicated than that. And, you know, I wouldn't characterize all the scholarship that way. But basically, like, you know, 
this is what we call the deficit model, right? And there's a kind of contradiction that we come up with because people like myself that have spent some amount of time teaching these kind of developmental courses and thinking about them, we are kind of critical of the sort of epistemic or the kind of like ideological basis for the idea that there's some group of students that doesn't that does isn't prepared for college in terms of their like literate practices right which again there's no underprepared students I've, I've never met an underprepared student ever i don't know what that means but on the one hand so we're critical of this idea right but then when you see like legislation or institutional objectives or like you know proposals or suggestions to get rid of basic writing or get rid of a certain course or get rid of a certain program we're against that too because those programs are like very important for like a lot of students to be able to access college at all so there's like a there's a contradiction there where it's like i'm critical of this thing but at the same time it's like i'm i'm not i'm gonna like I'm not gonna advocate for you know it being removed or whatever right so the thing about studio is that so for those of you that don't know, studio is a way of doing quote unquote remediation that is not a regular semester long course. And the reason that it's not a regular semester long course is because it was invented it at the, I want to say, fact check me if I'm wrong on this, everybody, but the book, the writing teaching writing in third spaces, right, says that they came up with studio at the University of South Carolina because the state of South Carolina passed a law saying that you couldn't have remedial courses in any public college, like a public four-year school in the state of South Carolina. So they had to come up with some kind of other way of doing this because um, they couldn't do like a regular basic writing course anymore, right? And so essentially what they came up with was a co-requisite system where students who are, you know, sort of designated as in need of some kind of additional support spend time outside of the course additionally in a smaller group with a studio instructor where they like work on their writing projects together and kind of reflect on the course with a little bit of distance. And they're able to kind of create like a sort of collective, uh, ideally, they're able to create a collective sort of um, experience with each other where they work on the writing, right? Now, this is the important thing that I like to say to people when we talk about remediation, which is that there are there is a big difference between students who might need additional support to succeed in college right for whatever reason versus students who are like deficient and need to be brought up to speed skills wise i know this because i myself was a student who supposedly right according to all these metrics was testing at all, you know, at 99th percentile in everything my whole life since I was a kid, 
but I was so bad at college. I was extremely bad at like doing homework, turning stuff in on time, like all that. So I myself could have actually benefited from a lot of extra time to like think about things like time management, efficacy, you know, and like executive function and all that type of stuff. Even then there's a certain level of inequity there, right? Where it's like, if we look at one student and another student, and we say, well, this student is having a hard time because they don't have good time management. But that student has childcare responsibilities and a full-time job and is maybe, you know, for example, like the only person in their household who like um, reads and writes and speaks English. And they have all these extra responsibilities and stuff on top of college. Then you have another student who has no job, who has a car, who has an apartment that their folks pay for, all this other stuff. They got nothing to do other than go to school, right? So even the time management thing is like really kind of not super fair. I'm not knocking anybody that had that experience in college, right? You know, like, but I'm just saying it's like not really fair to think about it like that. But no matter what, there is an extent to which studio to me creates a se separate little space over here where students can, you know, kind of try to have like a non-hierarchical maybe collective experience with each other to think critically about like literacies and writing and texts and the way they circulate in an academic way. Right. Which I think is cool. Yeah. And I think that that's cool because it creates a separate space where students get additional time, right. And additional support to think about how they want to conceptualize their relationship to writing. And the reason that we bring the anti-racist aspect into it and why I think that there is a potential for very like valuable anti-racist work in the studio model is because I, and many other people, I didn't invent this. I think that there's like a very important aspect of racial politics within the ways that we think about developmental writing to begin with. And the reason being is that when we think about basic writing and the journal of basic writing, and we think about Mina Shaughnessy, basically the reason that these basic writing courses were developed in the sixties and seventies is sort of related to the open admissions thing where after student protests and, you know, sit-ins and occupations or whatever, public universities like, you know, the City University of New York, for example, they are um, admitting a more diverse cohort of students from all different types of backgrounds. And there is a racial politics to it where you have the idea of an open admission student, which you see in the early basic writing literature. And they're saying that they're, you know, open admission students are like, you know, not college ready or they're not like ready to, you know, read and write at the college level. So then you have an entire system of remediation that's developed in direct response to a like perceived influx of like black and brown students in public university. So then decades later, when you start to see attacks on, Right. Well, they were they were there was always attacks on this stuff, but they started to take on a new character with like, you know, uh, with Rudy Giuliani, for an example. 
where they were saying we're going to eliminate remedial courses from these four-year colleges because they like use too many resources and they don't actually like have positive outputs or whatever. And that was connected to like broken windows policing and welfare reform and all this other stuff. So basically what I'm sort of implying and what I've gotten from my study of the history of all this is that when you're thinking about remediation and questions of like underprepared or unprepared students and all this stuff, there's kind of like always an implicit racial politics to it. I'm not necessarily doing the best job of explaining it off the top of the head, but that's the way that I think about it. So the thing is, it's like with studio in and of itself, right? You're not necessarily going to get there all the way, but studio creates like a sort of structural system where you can maybe have a conducive atmosphere to giving students a opportunity to like reflect critically on, you know, their own literate practices and the expectations of the university and stuff like that, where you can maybe be a little bit more explicit with the students about like the reasons why other faculty and other courses have the attitudes that they have about reading and writing and literacy and pedagogy and things like that. So, you know, that's basically where it is for me, because if you if, if I'm in a room with like five students, you know, and they have like some kind of experience that they're having with a particular assignment, I have an opportunity where I can say like, oh, OK, well, you know, like this is the way it actually is or like this is the real, you know, situation or like whatever the kinds of situations that I was talking about from when I was a teenager where you can have like a genuine community sort of collective learning experience with students to think through these kinds of things together, as opposed to like a course that has to have, you know, learning outcomes and assignments and assessment and stuff like that. If you're kind of like over there, sort of in like a different kind of, you know, little zone, I think that's a good opportunity to, you know, kind of develop relationships with students that are kind of collegial and non-hierarchical to the extent that that's possible. So that's kind of, that's where we're at now. So we're kind of working, we're working on that chapter uh, today. I mean, actually, I'm about to go have a meeting about that when I get out of here. Excellent. Continued success with this important work, for sure. I know that you're going to be at Four C's and a couple other conferences coming up even though we're going to be virtual which is probably definitely the right call really quickly the abolitionist horizon and rhetoric and writing is the title of your your presentation for c's really quickly what's that what can people expect who want to check out that presentation okay cool so uh i'm working on that with alia um hohauser thatcher from wayne state and Anna Zemont from the Grad Center, who I think I has her. been a guest on this podcast yeah, before. Yeah, she's cool. She's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, hello, Anna, if you hey, are Anna. listening. <laughs> uh, hello. So we're all working on that together. Um, so basically, the idea is that, you know, they and I'll, I'm just going to speak for myself on this and try to summarize the panel proposal. But if, if I get it wrong, Whatever my co-presenters say, it's probably what we're actually doing. I'm sorry. I, I'm not as organized as I should be. The idea is that 
there are there is an extent to which like um prison related topics are being taken up within rhetoric and writing studies as well as within uh community writing and community literacy i don't i like to i, I like to not try to say that community literacy is like under the larger umbrella of rhetoric and writing studies i don't know that it's totally cool to say that it's like a sub-discipline of rhetoric and writing i think it's kind of its own thing but there's an overlap is the way that i like to put that people are writing about prisons and prison literacy education and things like that and then in rhetoric and writing of course a lot of people are talking about anti-racist topics have been since the inception of composition studies right all the way back to the 60s and 70s so that's not totally new but there are new aspects of the conversation and it's taken on a new valence recently but it's not a new conversation it's not like people in composition studies just you know learned about this stuff two seconds ago like it's an ongoing thing um but i have not seen as of yet a direct engagement with abolitionist activism or scholarship or like intellectual work within rhetoric and writing studies as of yet. And I think that engaging abolitionist, uh, you know, theorizing and praxis can be a way for rhetoric and writing studies to kind of work through and deal with its own baggage with a lot of different issues and then also make important connections to larger public conversations about racism and literacy education and things like that you know prisons policing environmental justice stuff which is also a thing that we talk about a lot right so basically that's kind of what we're trying to yeah. what i'm trying to gesture towards in my presentation and what i believe my you know co-presenters to be doing is to kind of like not even in like a, and i don't think i don't it's not like my or our like genius idea that we came up with on a mountain somewhere like i don't really think about it like that it's more so like, you know, I think of it as kind of like a relay race thing where it's like a lot of people are not necessarily familiar with a lot of the scholarship or, you know, they're not maybe not super familiar with some of the ideas or whatever. So basically, you know, it's like I'm my goal is to kind of try to like introduce people to some of this stuff and kind of share with them some of the resources that have been so important for me is the way that I think about it. So I don't want I don't want to kind of send the message that this is like my thing that I'm doing or any type of thing like that. Like, it's really just, I, you know, it's for all of us. Right. And I'm like trying to like share some of the stuff that I've read with other people, I guess yeah. is kind of my disposition. Yeah. So well, that's what we'll be doing. Very cool. Well, that might not be your brilliant idea. One thing that was your brilliant idea that you worked on is absent, but present voices from the writer's block which is available for listeners from the Detroit Free School Press. Walter, thanks so much for joining me for an interview. Thanks today. for it having me. Been, it's so exciting. Yeah, it's been great to learn about your work. And just, 
you know, importantly for the listeners, so for me to learn about things I don't know that much about in the field. So it was nice to sit back and learn from you. Have a great afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You too. my interview with Walter Luckin IV. Their work in abolitionist rhetoric, abolitionist histories, it's so interesting and I learned a lot and I learned that I have a lot of work to do. Honestly y'all, Walter is interesting. I can't wait to see what he does next. I'll be back next week with another new interview on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Waccamaw Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Septa Helix, and Martijin de Boyer.